Mark 6, 1-13. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that he's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. What would you say has been the hardest thing for you in terms of being a Christian? And we've got people here today who've been Christians for very different lengths of time, but for the time that you've been a Christian, what would you say you've found toughest about being a Christian? Do you think there have been sacrifices that you've had to make because of your faith in Jesus? Have there been ways that it's perhaps cost you as a follower of Jesus? For some people, the cost of following Jesus can be pretty significant. Um, I've known people who, because they became a Christian, lost their family. Family members refused to speak to them because they now professed a faith in Jesus. I've known of people for whom it meant losing their job, quite literally walking in and explaining to the boss that they had become a Christian and that they wouldn't be able to do some of the things. And the boss said, that's absolutely fine, put everything in a box and head out of here because you can't work here anymore. I've known of people for whom it's cost them friendships and promotions. And you only need to read through history to realise that there are thousands of people who've lost their lives simply because of following Jesus. We reach chapter 6 in Mark's Gospel today and it's a section where Jesus wants to deal with that question of the potential cost of following him. Rejection and suffering are real possibilities for those who trust in Jesus. But more than that, we see that Jesus truly is worth following, no matter what the cost might be. Now, chapter 6 begins with Jesus back in his hometown of Nazareth and news is spreading pretty quickly about Jesus, the miracles that he's doing, the power and the authority that he seems to have. So, what kind of a reception will he get when he goes home? Sports people seem to love playing in front of their own crowd. Uh, for a cricketer, scoring a ton is great, but to score a ton when you're from New South Wales, to do that at the SCG in front of your home crowd, well, that's, that's even better. 
In the year 2000, Australia did better in the Olympics than anyone could have imagined. They performed better because they were in front of a home crowd. They experienced the support of that home crowd. Well, it seems that there's no home ground advantage when it comes to preaching the good news about the kingdom. When Jesus returns to Nazareth, he has a less than favourable reception. You see it there at the beginning of the chapter, John, uh, Jesus heads to the synagogue in Nazareth and he began to teach, simply to read out passages of scripture for people. He'd no doubt taught the same things about the kingdom coming. He would have taught them that it's time to repent and to believe this good news of the gospel. But they don't want to hear from a guy who they knew when he was growing up. I suppose in some ways it's pretty understandable, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is in front of his home crowd, but he hasn't come there to entertain them or to play a game of cricket or a game of tennis. He hasn't come to tell them how much he enjoyed growing up in Nazareth and what a great crowd they are. He's telling them about the kingdom and he's telling them that they need to repent and believe, turn back to God. The message that Jesus has is one that people don't often want to hear, especially when it's to the people that you grew up with. And when he teaches in the synagogue, at first people are amazed by what Jesus says, but gradually they become offended by what Jesus says. Their thinking seems to be this, hang on, we know you, we watched you grow up, we saw you work as a carpenter, we know your mother, we know your brothers and sisters... How dare you come here and tell us that we need to repent? Look at what it says. That's what it says. Verse 2, partway through that verse. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that he's been given, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. like the old saying you can't talk to this you can't talk to people who aren't really ready to listen to what you have to say mark presents an interesting little twist in this passage when jesus goes to the synagogue the people are amazed by their or thought by his authority and wisdom but by the end of this little episode down at the end of verse six it's jesus who's amazed and look at what he's amazed about he was amazed at their lack of faith. Well, after this disappointing return home, Jesus heads off and continues teaching from village to village. But now it's the disciples who are going to be involved in this work. He sends them out in pairs to the surrounding villages and sends them out with his authority. They'll be able to do the things that Jesus has been doing, be able to cast out demons, to be able to heal people and to tell people the good news of the kingdom, that it's time to repent and believe. They're telling people that the kingdom has come. And Jesus gives them instructions starting there in verse number 8. He says that they are not to take anything with them. The assumption would be that they are to depend upon God when they go out. And when they get to a town, they're to stay in the one house. If they're welcome somewhere, they should stay in that house as long as those people are happy to have him there and willing to show hospitality. They're not to go looking for a more comfortable bed or better meals somewhere else. Stay in the place that you're in. And if they're rejected, then Jesus says that they are to shake the dust off their feet 
as they leave that town. Uh, a symbolic gesture and one that was practiced by the Pharisees. Given Jesus has just been rejected in his hometown and given that he's just sent 12 disciples out with the warning that they might be rejected as well, Mark decides it's a good time to tell us the story of John the Baptist. Mark's Gospel opened with Jesus preparing the, with John preparing the way for Jesus to come. And Jesus' ministry gets kicked off in chapter 1. Then we're told that John the Baptist was thrown into jail. John had denounced Herod, it seems publicly, for marrying his brother's wife. Uh, Her name was Herodias and Herod uh, was put into prison because he'd said unfavourable things about this marriage. Well, you probably know the story. Herod was holding a banquet and Herodias, his new wife's daughter, uh, sorry, Herodias's daughter, was dancing for the guests, something that greatly pleased Herod and the crowd. And he boldly promised to give her whatever she wanted, anything up to half the kingdom because of this wonderful dancing. It was just an arrogant boast on his part. But it comes back to bite him because after consulting her mother... She comes back and tells Herod she wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I'm only guessing here, but I bet there would have been a bit of a deathly hush come across the banquet at that point. I don't think anyone was expecting that. And Herod didn't really know what to do. It would be embarrassing to go back on his word. So he does it. He orders that John be executed and he gives her his head on a pallet, on a platter. Now in verse 30, we move to another banquet and I'm sure that Mark wants us to contrast these two banquets. They kind of sit very nicely together because they explain two different kings, two different kingdoms and two different banquets. King Herod and King Jesus, Herod's birthday banquet and Jesus feeding the 5,000. Herod, the proud and heartless leader, and Jesus, the faithful good shepherd of God's people. The disciples have returned from their first tour of duty and they're reporting to Jesus about all that's happened. And they've jumped into a boat with Jesus to try and head around to the lake because we're told that they wanted to find a quiet place, presumably somewhere they could escape the crowd. But the people see where they're heading and they take off, on, take off on foot and run around the edge of the lake and they get there before Jesus does. But look at what it says, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Jesus sees them. And automatically, he's filled with compassion for these people. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're told that Jesus is the sheep, uh, that they are a group that look like sheep without a shepherd and that Jesus is ultimately going to be the good shepherd. Mark describes all of these events in a way that really heavily calls on Psalm 23. Where are they? Well, They're in a quiet place beside the water. Mark's told us that it's a solitary place right by the Sea of Galilee. And what does Jesus do for them? 
Did you notice in the passage that it says that he gets them to lie down on the green grass? The NIV translates it sit down, but it's literally to recline, to lie down. And it even says that they lie down in the green grass, just like Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And what does Jesus do for them? He restores their soul. He guides them in paths of righteousness. Here are people who have no leader and Jesus leads them. When Jesus finished teaching the, teaching the people, he tells the disciples that they're not to dismiss the crowd and send them home, that's what the disciples want to do. Jesus says, get them something to eat. There's 5,000 people here. And this is a, a ludicrous um, suggestion. Peter says that it would cost a whole eight months' worth of wages. I did a quick calculation here. So if the average, age, uh, average wage, as it is today in Australia, $62,400, the eight months' worth of wages, that's going to be $41,600. And divide that by 5,000, there could have been more people there, but we know that there were at least 5,000 people. It's going to work out about $8.32 per person. That probably sounds about right, doesn't it? Would you be able to get everyone lunch for $8.32 per person? No, I don't think Jesus thought for a minute that they were going to be able to feed those people. But saying this just really served to highlight that he can do it. What the disciples were completely unable to do, Jesus can do. And he does it with just two fish and five loaves of bread. And there's so much left over at the end that there are baskets full of food. Here's the banquet with God's King, a leader who can be trusted, a leader who has the interests of his people at heart. He's not like Herod. He's not arrogant and boastful and cruel. He's compassionate. He's not looking to have anyone beheaded. In fact, he will be the one who will give his life for everybody else. Here's the shepherd who's worth following. It's not a guarantee that everything will be smooth sailing. We've seen him rejected in his hometown and we've seen him tell the disciples that they're going to be rejected as well if they start preaching this message about the kingdom. And we've even seen that the cost can be high in following Jesus. John the Baptist pays the highest possible price. So let me take you back to the question at the beginning. What's been the cost you when it comes to following Jesus? What have been the sacrifices that you've had to make as a follower of Jesus? Maybe you can't think of any or many. Why is that? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm certainly not saying that everyone has to pay some heavy price or otherwise you're not really being serious about Jesus. And I'm not suggesting that you go out looking for suffering somewhere. But maybe the reason your Christianity hasn't cost you anything is that you've been unwilling to let it cost you anything. Some people avoid the cost of following Jesus. They, look, they just prefer to fly under the radar, unwilling to change habits, unwilling to put themselves out, not willing to 
forego any of the comforts of life, not willing to give up time. The cost of following Jesus can be big and it can be small. The cost may be that you don't seek the promotion at work because you'd rather spend more time with your church or with your family. I know a guy who lives not too far from here who worked for a major accounting firm here in Sydney and when he was on the the climb up the ladder but he went in and saw his bosses and negotiated to just work four days a week so that he could donate one day a week to working for his church. Probably no surprise, that was an absolute career killer for him. Maybe the cost is putting off buying the new car so that you can support the work of a mission organisation or help the churches up in a flood-bound area up north. Maybe it's something as simple as just getting here before 10 o'clock on Sunday morning so that you can seek to encourage someone. Maybe you make yourself available to teach Sunday school or scripture or help out with kids club or youth group. Maybe you arrange your social life so that you can be at Bible study every week. Maybe you invite those friends or neighbours over for dinner and see if you can start up a conversation about what you believe and find out what they believe. Jesus is the leader who is worth following. He's the leader who's worth sacrificing for. He's the leader who's worth suffering for. He's the one who gave his life for us. Next time you come to one of those decisions that you need to make, one of those counting the cost moments, make sure you remember the cost that was counted for you.